This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. For a full year, we're looking at the life, teachings, and works of Jesus from the four Gospels, put together in chronological flow of his life. We're here in episode number 16, so we're a bit into it. And we're going to today begin to look at, for a few weeks here, some of the parables of Jesus. We'll come back and get some more later in the podcasts, but let's take a look at a, a few of the parables today. These parables are are his teachings. Uh, but just in general, Ben, what can you tell us about what the purpose of the parables were in Jesus' life and teaching? They were utilized as a, a, a really as Jesus using uh, the mechanism of a story uh, to relate a greater biblical truth. Um, the interesting dynamic of the parable is that for many who heard the parables, they led to the hardness of heart, um, where they didn't understand the, the fuller meaning uh, behind the parable or what he was getting at, uh, but used, uh, used common language, common stories, things that would have uh, metaphors from uh, the world of agriculture or, or other metaphors as a means to communicate truth. And they're very memorable because they're stories. I I remember the stories that my dad and my mom told me from their childhood or uh, that's what sticks with you, right? You can remember stories. And so Jesus was a master storyteller as he tells the story. So we're going to jump in with Mark chapter four today. You'll find these parables in Matthew 13 and Luke eight also, but we'll just take the narrative through Mark chapter four. And he tells a, f- a few parables along here that, that are interesting. We're going to just zone in today on really one of them, and by and large, and, th- and that's the parable of the four soils, four different kinds of soil that he talks about in our life. And we want to look at, at some of these parables this week and next week, and look, what do the things stand for? And fortunately, with a few of these, he tells us. He not only gives us the parable but he gives us the meaning behind the parable as well, which is not really normal in his teaching. But for a few of them here, he does that. He tells us what they actually mean, what the things stand for, and all that kind of thing. So what we'll do today is we'll, we'll kind of go through this, and we'll do the, the parable piece and then the meaning piece at the same time and explore that a little bit together. The context of this in Mark chapter 4, verse 1, is it takes place by the lake, it says. The lake, as if we all know which lake they're talking about. Of course, we, we do, because he spent so much time by the Sea of Galilee, which is really a freshwater lake. It's a very large lake, though not as large as you would think. You know, I, I always thought, Ben, that that the, the Sea of Galilee, because maybe because of the name Sea or the, the lake of Gennesaret, I always thought it was huge, like Lake Michigan. Sure, sure. But it's kind of like a big reservoir, as we would maybe think of it in the States. If you can see from one side to the other, not the lengthwise, but widthwise, you can, you can see, you can't see the detail, of course, what's on the other side, but you can see the land on the opposite side of, of the lake. And we'll, we'll be looking at that a little bit here. He spends a lot of time around that lake. It, it seems to be where he did his mess of his ministry. He found his disciples there. He hung out there. He spent time there. And here he is once again. And it's in 
Mark chapter 4, verse 1, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. Let me just, let me just ask you a question about, about this. Now, like, if you're, if you're by a lake, there's, there's some noise that's going on. Did you spend much time near lakes when you were growing up? Yeah, I grew up two blocks away. Uh, from Lake Pontchartrain on the uh, north shore of the lake, on the south shore of Lake Pontchartrain is uh, is New Orleans. And we talk about the size of the lake. And I remember growing up as a kid uh, thinking that Lake Pontchartrain was enormous. I mean, even living that close to the Gulf Coast and spending a lot of time uh, on the shores of the Gulf of Mexico, um, the lake seemed so enormous to me. And yet on a really clear day, you could see New Orleans uh, from the North Shore looking to the South Shore, you could see the, the city of, of New Orleans. And I remember one time uh, looking at an actual map and the number, I can't remember exactly what the number is, but the number of Lake Pontchartrains that fit in the lake, in, in uh, Lake Michigan, you know, I mean, multiple, it's like five times over or something. And so I thought I lived on the shore of this enormous lake that I came to find out later uh, was much smaller uh, but living uh, on the the shoreline of the lake, yeah, there's there's the uh, the, the bustling that goes on. With there was a lot of uh, a lot of folks who who sailed on the lake. There's a lot of boat traffic and and noise. I mean, even the sheer noise of the crashing waves uh, in the midst of a of a good storm, um, you know, drowned out a, a lot of the the surrounding noise. So you live close to the lake. You live close to the Gulf. Uh, which which freaked you out more, gators or sharks? Uh, you sharks, have both, right? sharks, yeah, ga- gators. I don't know why they they never really traumatized me much, um, but sharks. There was all you know. I mean, growing up and watching Jaws, I was uh, convinced that at some point I was going to get sucked under. And having uh, done uh, some fishing offshore, some deep sea fishing, and and having caught a, f- a few sharks uh, as well. I mean, I knew they were there, right? But you can't see them. Um, so I was convinced at some point I, I would be taken uh, by a shark. But yeah, for whatever reason, alligators never really traumatized me much or unnerved me. Maybe there's not a good enough gator movie out there like Jaws that... <laughs> that Maybe that you. is. There, there was one back in the 80s, I think, where somebody had, I think, tossed some, uh, I think it was uh, some uh, nuclear uh, contaminated fish or something uh, in their like flushed it down into the sewer and some gator got a hold of it and then grew to, you know, 50 feet long or something. But yeah, I mean, that, that didn't traumatize me so much. I don't much. recall that movie. I, could, well, I don't think Jesus probably had to deal with gators and sharks in this freshwater lake, but it, it does say in Mark 4, chapter 1, if we can somehow uh, reel back into the Bible here, <laughs> that Jesus began to teach by the lake. This is the crowd that gathered around him was so large. Mm that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. And so that just made me think, you said about the waves kind of crashing yeah. there, and it had to be noisy. And I would imagine with this large crowd, they had to be you know, shushing each other and really trying to lean in and listen to Jesus because he, he was out, on the, out from the edge just a bit maybe in the boat so that he could have some space because the crowd was just that enormous. So it says he, in verse two, he taught them many things by parables, many things by parables. Down in, down in verse 10 of, of Mark four, we get a sense of what 
this parable teaching was about that we've already talked about. Mm. When he was alone, the 12, that is the 12 disciples, and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. Interesting. So that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. It seems kind of like a harsh statement, doesn't it? At the, at the outset of that, like what's he getting at here? But if you look back in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, that whole Isaiah 6 chapter wise is a pretty good one where Isaiah has his, his call from God. He, he meets, meets God and, and feels like he's going to be doomed because he's met, he's met with God and he knows he's a sinner, a man with unclean lips. And these very words, a, a version of these words, are what come out of him his mouth at this point in time as as the angel is is speaking to Isaiah and Isaiah with the angel of God. So it's almost like Jesus is here speaking that this is going to be fulfilled in your midst. This is what you're going to do. In fact, over in the book of Acts, the some of the very last verses, Acts twenty eight verses twenty six to twenty eight these same words are quoted once again. And, and here's a, a phrase that's used there. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. So these, these words about the secrets of the kingdom of God, and, and especially they may be seeing but not perceiving, hearing but not understanding, forgiveness will come their way. They were used back in the Old Testament by Isaiah. They were used by Jesus. They were used uh, by Luke when he wrote the book of Acts about the early church. Um, you know, you got any insights like for me on this? Like what's, what's being driven at through this, this thread that's weaving through all of Scripture about seeing but not seeing, hearing but not hearing, kind of getting it, the, the things of God? Yeah, I think back to Isaiah where Isaiah is commissioned by God in, in chapter 6 to go and uh, call the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah to repentance. And God basically tells uh, Isaiah that while there, there will be a remnant of, of those who, who repent, those who uh, follow after God, the vast majority of people are going to reject him. And so it's almost this call to, uh, to be faithful as he goes and declares God's message, but also understanding that most will receive it with a hard heart. And not just with a hard heart, but that Isaiah himself uh, will experience persecution in the face of that hard-heartedness, that he will experience rejection as he delivers God's word. And so we see this with Jesus as he delivers these parables, recognizing uh, that those in, in his midst that are often uh, times uh, hearing the parables, such as the religious leaders, are going to receive those parables, are going to receive uh, the truths about the kingdom of God with this hard-hearted rejection. And so that's how I, how I read uh, the words here relative to, to what Christ is saying and drawing on this passage from Isaiah. So the hard-heartedness you're saying is what made them blind to it, deaf to it, unable to 
perceive it and understand it because they were just closed off. Yes. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's something, you know, at the, the end of that chapter in Isaiah six, it, it's summed up by this, the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Everything's going to be cut down. It's be terrible. It's, it's ruined. It's, it's ravaged by others who are coming in to take the, the land, but there will be a seed. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wonder if Jesus, when he's telling the story and weaving this piece into it, is beginning to use that, that picture, that image of the seed as he begins to talk about farmer sowing his seed. Nonetheless, let's look at that story. It's in Mark chapter 4, verse 3, when Jesus said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And we're told later in verse 14 that the farmer sows the word when Jesus explains it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in Luke, it says the seed is the word of God. So in this story, you've got the seed, which is the word of God. You've got the farmer who represents God or Jesus, right? Or, or somebody who's sowing that seed. And really the only thing that we can control in this story that's coming up is what kind of soil we are, which seems weird because soil can't control itself, right? But there's a sense in which, unless we think we're just destined to be bad soil all of our lives, there's a sense in which Jesus seems to be teaching this to say, don't be the bad kinds of soil, be the good kind of soil that we're, we're getting to. So let's just jump into those kinds of soil there are four of them. There's the packed soil, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and the good soil. As he tells this story that gives us insight into the kind of people that we are. It's in Mark 4, 4 that I'm in now. It's the packed soil, the hard soil. And Jesus said, as the farmer was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, the hard path where people walked. And the birds came and ate it up. In his explanation in verse 15, Jesus said, some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. This speaks to what you were talking about a moment ago about the hard hearts of the Pharisees and others around Jesus that heard the same thing that everybody else heard but just couldn't hold on to it. There was no place for germination of the seed in their life because they were so hard. And it says Satan comes and takes it away. Talk to me about that one a little bit. It doesn't just bounce off and get washed away. You know, sometimes I'll I'll, uh, get my rotary spreader out and put down some fertilizer or or maybe even some seed to go overseed the yard. And some of it falls on the sidewalk and, I don't expect it to grow up there, but the picture of Satan coming and taking that away, uh, what do you see there? What I see there is that the person uh, who has given themselves over to this hard-heartedness ultimately has yielded themselves to the scheme uh, of the devil to where they have have given themselves over uh, ultimately to his desire, which is to, which is rejection of the Messiah, which is the rejection of of the Christ. Yeah. So those folks, um, there's the root, no root at all. There's, it doesn't even germinate. The seed is just there and they're 
they're sold out to the wrong thing, right? He goes on to the next kind of soil, the rocky soil, where there's just no root. If one was a hard heart, this is a shallow heart, I think. It's in Mark 4, verse 5. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly enough because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. And his explanation, verse 16, said this, others like the seed sown on rocky places are people who hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And here comes the, the punchline, I think. Mm-hmm. Whereas one was Satan coming to take it away, Jesus said, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. So in Jesus' metaphor here, these are people who have said yes to Jesus. They've, you know, every eye closed, every head bowed, you know, they've, they've, they've given their life to Jesus. But when life doesn't go their way, when they go through hardship, when they go through turmoil, when they go through being hassled or persecuted because of their faith, they're like, I'm out. What I see here are, are folks who ultimately see Christ through the lens of he exists for my good pleasure rather than I exist for his good pleasure. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Jesus is the, the divine genie or, you know, the divine vending machine that is going to grant us uh, that which our heart desires. Um, so it's not us conforming our will, conforming our desire to Christ. It's ultimately Jesus living into our will and into our desire where we've become functionally God. And when people run up against the, the reality, that's, that's not what Christ, the relationship Christ has called us into. Um, oftentimes we'll, we'll see those hearts rather than shifting to God's will, uh, you know, we'll run for the exits. When I was a kid growing up, my, um, my dad always went to our neighbor. His name was Roy Everett, and he had a farmall tractor. It was, it was older than the dirt we were plowing. And we would plow up his garden every year, a huge garden for him. He was an older, older gentleman. And then we, we would come across the, the way and then go to our back. We had three acres, and we'd plow, plow up our huge garden every year. And one of my jobs was to sit on the side as my dad was doing the, the plowing and the disking. And one of my jobs was when he stopped to jump off, like, hey, Mark, get that rock. Get those rocks out of here. Those, those rocks are going to inhibit the, the growth of the garden. So get off here and, and pick that thing up, work your muscles, and throw that into the ditch. Get, get rid of that. There, you know, there's a, a true sense in which in our lives we need to go through and pick up the stones. You know, pick up the rocks, pick, pick up the things that are keeping us from putting deep roots in with God in our lives. He goes on to the next one. It's the thorny soil, the thorny soil. And if the first was a hard heart, the second was a shallow heart, this might just be what you call a distracted heart. This might be the one that grabs, oh, most of us, most of the time, they're competing plants with the one good plant that God's trying to grow into our lives. It's in Mark chapter 4 again, verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. 
so that they did not bear grain. In the explanation in verse 18, Jesus said, Still other people, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word of God. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. In Luke's rendition of this, he says they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. You know, these kind of things really are a trap for, for many people. I mean, we, we think of, I think of the American culture today, and we have a lot of affluence, but Jesus spoke this 2,000 years ago. It wasn't like we invented distractions, worries, riches, pleasures, desire for things. What do you see in here that's a word for the listener to be able to say, there may be some things in my life, some, some vines growing up that I need to pluck out? Yeah, I think when I, when I read this piece of the passage, it's the, the multitude of cultural idols that we ultimately yield our hearts to. Um, I think it's Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller says that our, our hearts are idol-making factories. And uh, oftentimes, mm. uh, culture um, is, where our, is where our hearts run to. And so the things that are edified, glorified, uh, in culture, the things that we yield ourselves to, and even things that are good. I mean, I, I think about education. You know, my, my family, uh, we, we cherish ed- education. Uh, we think education is a good thing. Um, but it's always interesting to me that the ways that I think about parents and their desire for, for their children um, to, to be academically successful, uh, to do well uh, academically, and how even in the life that we structure around academics, uh, sometimes uh, communicates that that is a greater priority than our relationship with Christ. And one of the easiest ways that that, that I oftentimes uh, speak into this is that I, I ask parents, how what time do your kids go to bed on Saturday night? For parents who who love the Lord, who desire for their children to grow up in the Lord, and one of the things I'll hear is, oh, you know, we'll, we'll let them stay up really late on Saturday night. We'll let them do whatever they want. You know, it's an opportunity. It's the weekend. And so they can kind of cut loose and relax. And that's something that we would never say from Sunday night to Thursday night, right? Because we got to get up early for school. We got to be well rested. We got to have our mind, you know, ready and primed to, to learn uh, so that we can grow up academically to put our kids in the best place for success uh, academically, but then when it comes to Sunday morning, we don't put our kids in the best place for them to grow up in a relationship with Christ, to be engaged uh, within the body of Christ. And so that in itself is a revelation. It should be a revelation uh, to us of where our hearts are centered. Uh, so even something as good and as important as our, our child's academic success, uh, while we might not say this, we communicate it and how we raise our, our children, even, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, because these, when, what Luke calls life's worries, riches, and pleasures, are, they're not necessarily evil things. Right. They're just things. Right. right. And whether it's, whether it's academics, or athletics, or, or music, or uh, even forget children, just in our own lives, the entertainment world, and, and the things mm-hmm. that we like, they're, they're not things that are innately evil necessarily 
but they can choke us out. They can compete with the growth that God wants to do. It seems to be what Jesus is saying here, at least. And then he moves on to the good soil. Finally, still others, other seed fell on the good soil. You know, remember, we are the soil in this picture. Other seed, other word of God fell on the good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop. Some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times more than the seed that was there. And in his explanation in verse 20, Jesus said others like seed sown on good soil. He says three things. Number one, hear the word. Number two, accept the word of God. And number three, produce a crop. Those three pieces are important. It's not enough just to hear, to listen to a podcast, to to read the Bible, but to embrace it and accept it as step two. And then to ask the question, what am I going to do about it? Who is God wanting me to be? What is God wanting me to do? And then to apply it in our lives and to put it into action. Jesus seems to say, that's what good soil is like. So how can we in our lives, summing this up, how can we become better soil for the word of God? I think continuously, not to simplify it, I guess, but to continuously lean into our relationship with Christ, to give our ourselves to the things that are going to ultimately yield that crop, uh, right where we see our own hearts ripened near to the heart of Christ, where we see uh, our lives seeking to, to live out God's call to go and to make disciples. And so we're going to give our things. We're going to put ourselves in a place uh, where we're going to grow. So we're going to give ourselves to the body of Christ. We're going to give ourselves to the word. We're going to give ourselves to a life of prayer. And as we enter into those things, we're going to enter into them with a disposition of humility, where we're seeking to live under the lordship of Christ. We're, we're coming into that relationship. We're coming into those things with a posture of submission. Um, because sadly, I think a lot of times uh, Christians, when we, when we encounter something like within the word, uh, sometimes that, that, that seems disagreeable to us, um, our disposition, sadly, isn't oftentimes one of acceptance or, or one of submission, but one of defensiveness, where we're trying to find an end around to get around the, the truth that's presented. And so I think the, the biggest thing is the position, uh, our posture before God. So as we give ourselves to our life in Christ, uh, we're coming into that relationship seeking to submit ourselves a seeking of posture of humility and submission. That is very profound and an excellent way to, to end this podcast. Jesus said this, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Folks, if you want to jump in deeper, go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, or our church app and click on the Life of Jesus link. That'll lead you to more elements in this year-long study Next time, we're going to be looking at yet a different parable. This time, the seed stands for us. Jesus used these metaphors to have different meanings for different stories. Until then, God bless. Mm